Hello, Slate Plus members. It is survey time again, which means that it's your chance to tell us what you think about Slate Plus and Slate. It'll only take a few minutes and you can find the survey at slate.com slash survey. This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Corinne Siegel, a senior editor at Literary Hub who lives in Brooklyn, New York, with a preponderance of plants, stacks of poetry books, and an extremely loyal cat named Dill. Corinne, welcome. Thanks, Danny. Glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and I just want all our listeners to know, I think that might be the record of the number of takes I had to do to introduce someone else. I flubbed every word in that introduction but I made it. I'm here. I'd love to hear more about Dill, and I'm just thrilled to get to talk to you. It's going great. You did have it completely right the very first time you said it when we were not actually recording yet. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that you can get full credit for that. And I have plenty of things to say about my cat. <laughs> what is one thing that you would like our listeners to learn from your cat that we might all be more like Dill uh, and perhaps improve our own lives? Oh, that's a good question. I would say that uh, he is very decisive about knowing what he wants. What he wants is always the same. It is always chicken. And, uh, you know, may we all learn from such clarity. Yeah. Consistency, uh, owning your desires, all of that is stuff that I could use more of in my own life. Um, How do you feel, by the way, we're about to tackle a number of really all over the map types of questions. What do you feel like heading in is the thing that you're either the most excited about or the most anxious about? Hmm. I feel like... You know, preparing for today and reading the questions that we've got, I found myself repeating the same thing over and over, which was basically just do less. And, uh, you know, I'd say that uh, I'm excited to say that in a number of different ways to just find as many ways as possible to say (laughs) do less. Um, I feel like there were some situations with folks where they're sort of fighting the natural tide of things in a way that might actually be harmful. So, yeah, I'd say I'm both excited and anxious for that. Yeah, I I think often I get letters where somebody has to do a lot. And so the challenge is, how do I come up with a, a, a roadmap for doing a lot that feels manageable and doable? And it's always really, really great when you can tell someone you get to do less because that's such a gift. Yeah, it really is. It feels like such clarity and uh, yeah, like a thing that I should do more of myself is less. So in that, in very much in keeping with that theme, I would love it if you would read our first letter because I have a I have a theory that you and I are going to file this away under the do less uh, campaign. <laughs> yes, I also suspect that. OK, um, the first letter, my daughter's gawkers. I have an issue about my daughter's body and the way men react to it. She's 30, 5 foot 2, size 0, and wears a D-cup bra. She's healthy, although women have asked if she's eating enough. She's been able to make a joke of it to the women. Men have been looking slash gawking at her chest since she was 11. Back then, she was with me, so I was able to step in and say something. Now it's different. She's a grown woman. Mom can't be there to make a comment to the men who stare at her cleavage. She does not look proportionally large up top. Yes, she's lucky to have cleavage, 
But what can she say to men to get their eyes off her chest and at the same time set a boundary when they're talking to her? A glance or two is expected, but to stare while having a conversation? She does not wear low-cut glasses or short skirts. She does not wear heavy makeup, just a bit of blush and mascara. She was born and raised in the South, so she tends to be very polite. The yes, ma'am, or no, sir, to, well, pretty much everyone. But she was not raised to be timid, just respectful. I would like to give her a couple of witty, sarcastic remarks that would address the gawking situation in the moment. She fumes a bit about it after. I know she probably wouldn't say anything like, hey, buddy, eyes up here. Do you have any ideas of how to handle these situations? She didn't get that petite figure from my genes, so I have no experience in these things. She did tell me recently that boys have said things to her about her chest since second grade. I'd really appreciate your opinion, and I know she would too. So I I do think this is going to be a situation where the letter writer will get to be uh, slightly less active. Um, But I do also just want to say, it it sounds like based on this letter, uh, this letter writer has been getting a lot of feedback from her daughter. It's not like she is um, inserting herself into her daughter's life and demanding information about this. So I, I do want to ad- at least acknowledge, like, I get that your daughter is venting to you. It does sound like it bothers her. So at, at least in in that sense, um, it, it's not like you're creating a problem where there is none. But this, I, I will admit, I was surprised when I got to the line about she's 30. I was expecting she's 13. Yeah, I also was surprised when I got to that because at that point, you know, it, I... I suppose I could empathize with the feeling of helplessness that um, it seems this letter writer has. You know, it would be incredibly frustrating to watch anyone that you love going through this. But I was personally really interested in the impulse to give her some sort of witty, sarcastic remark to say in response to a behavior that clearly makes the daughter uncomfortable. Right. I I do sometimes get that where people want to know, like, what's a funny thing that I can say to sort of... um have just like in my holster at all times. And certainly uh, sometimes there are moments that call for it and that's great, but that can also be a lot of pressure to put on yourself to not only set a boundary with a a stranger or a near stranger who is behaving rudely, but also to do it in a way that's like, if I were in a sitcom, this would be followed by like laughter and applause and cheering and like, you go girl. And that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself when you feel like, uh, you know, like somebody is making you feel vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this letter writer goes to um, such effort to point out that the daughter has been able to make a joke about uncomfortable remarks to women. But, you know, when it comes to accommodating men while also rejecting the comments that they're making about her body, you know, she needs a different approach. I guess I would ask this letter writer, why, um, why does the daughter need to approach this in a way that makes everyone around the daughter comfortable? Um, And also, how far can you as a parent realistically go in helping her to do that? You know, it's my opinion that you can make her feel supported um, in rejecting these kinds of advances and, you know, make it clear that your daughter is allowed to stand up for herself in a way that might make people around her uncomfortable. And that's okay. That's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say, again, totally within your your rights and responsibilities as the parent of an adult child to talk to her about this, um, offer both your sympathy and some suggestions. But I would I would say in terms of like the responsibility for figuring out how she wants to deal with this situation, uh, just like in her life, that's that's hers to deal with. So don't feel like because I'm her mom and I care about this so much, I have to kind of be the one to solve it for her. Um, uh, 
I, I think to just have a sort of realistic sense of what can I do here? And that's really just offer a sympathetic ear from afar, occasionally ask open-ended questions that are designed to help her figure out what she wants in those situations and let her take it from there rather than I need to kind of like come out onto the playground and fight off my kids' bullies. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And I'd say, too, that, you know, we don't have a lot of context here on who exactly is making these remarks. You know, I, I get the sense that it's sort of a that um, this parent is receiving uh, comments from sort of a cross-section of the daughter's life. But, you know, we don't actually know if, for example, it's a coworker that's staring at the daughter's chest while, you know, they're trying to have a work-related conversation or if this is someone on the street who is shouting to her, you know. And there's just so much variability in those situations about how safe you would feel speaking up, how safe it is to speak up, and, um, you know, what what is at stake in those interactions. And so for that reason alone, I, I totally agree the best that, this uh, parent can do is make their daughter feel supported and also, you know, feel supported to be direct. You know, I, I don't I, I think that in particular, that's an important thing to just to make known that it's an option. It's not necessarily the right way to deal with it. You know, there is no right way to deal with this. It's all very dependent on what the daughter wants and dependent on the context. But, you know, I'd say that it sounds like the daughter might not realize quite so much that that is an option that's available. And so, you know, I think it might be an okay idea to uh, be clear about that. Yeah. So with all of those caveats, uh, I think one to just kind of uh, reflect or affirm to your daughter is just, I'm so sorry. I I hate that since you were in second grade, men have been doing this to you. Um, and I just, I love you. You don't deserve that. I wish that didn't happen. Um, would, would be, I think, just a helpful, like, loving thing to say. It doesn't fix the situation, but it just kind of acknowledges that, that that's been really, really hard and, and she shouldn't have to have started to figure out how do I fend off, like, male comments about my body at the age of, like, what is second grade? That's, like, eight years old. Um, so, so that's one thing that you can do. I think, too, again, you know, if it's somebody on the street and she does not feel safe, it is totally fine to just keep your head down and get out of that situation as quickly as you can. It's really okay to say, you're making me uncomfortable. Can you please stop staring at my chest? Um, that is an okay thing to say. That's not a rude thing to say. That's not an impolite thing to say. Um, that's a perfectly reasonable civil request. And if the person that she says that to acts uncomfortable or huffy afterwards, that's not her problem to solve. Like when someone does something rude and you acknowledge it, sometimes they get defensive and like, what are you talking about? I've never even heard of breasts. Um, and, and that is just on them and not on you. Yeah, you know, there's probably going to be some uncomfortable silences. Uh, There's going to be some moments that the daughter probably, you know, I'm just guessing, but probably would desperately want to fix. It's it's the worst feeling in the entire world to to speak up about something and then be faced with another person's discomfort and another person's sort of agony over the situation. And you know what? Like, it's okay. It's okay to let that lie. Like, they should be uncomfortable. They should know that they were making you uncomfortable. And it would be a really hard thing to deal with um, for so many years. I, you know... I, I can imagine. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say, too, uh, you know, not to go totally like 2013 slut walk politics on this one, but, uh, you know, the the sort of like lots and lots of context about like, here's what she looks like. Here's how she dresses. I understand that people are going to look sometimes. I would maybe set some of that aside. Um, you know, I, even if she did wear a lot of blush. 
um, or or different kinds of shirts, she would still have every right to say, I, I don't like it when men stare and make like really fucked up comments about my body to me, especially if it's in a, a professional setting or especially when I was a child going to school trying to learn. Um, you, you don't need to kind of justify um, the fact that she does not like being like ogled and and talked about like she's a sexy lamppost, you know, like that's all still yeah. uh, not OK. Yeah, that was also really striking to me reading this letter, you know, getting so much information on the daughter's appearance and, you know, the daughter's uh, self-presentation. It's just, you know, I, I can't imagine that, um, you know, it almost felt as though the the mother was saying, you know, she hasn't done anything to deserve it, I promise, you know, and and obviously that's the case. Obviously that's, you know, it, no matter what this person is wearing, um, you know, she doesn't deserve that treatment and she doesn't deserve to be made uncomfortable. So I just want to be really clear about that too. It would be still not okay if she was wearing short skirts or low-cut tops and, you know, still really not okay. Yeah, and, you know, I also just, again, I'm not saying like you're looking at this all the wrong way. It's in fact all your own fault or you were a bad parent. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I would also encourage you to reflect a little bit more on, um, you know, she was not raised to be timid, just respectful. And again, I'm not saying that you're mistaken about that, but oftentimes, um, unless you kind of really, really go out of your way to have conversations like this with young children, especially like daughters who start experiencing like profound sexualization at a very, very young age, um, it may very well be that the respectfulness that she was um, taught as she was growing up involved keeping men happy, um, not making a scene, um, not like, uh, you know, calling out or or say, demanding that somebody stop treating her like a sex object. Um, that may actually be very well uh, like a part of the respectfulness culture that she did grow up with. Um, so again, that's not to say you in fact raised her wrong or you taught her that she deserves whatever comments men throw her way. Just that um, I, I hear in that line kind of like I'm puzzled by this because I don't know where she picked up the idea that she can't just like comfortably toss off a one-liner when somebody looks at her breasts and like clearly is ogling her. Like if you... If you don't kind of really, really consciously make an effort to talk about that a lot, people can grow up absorbing larger uh, messages about that from the culture at large. I just said large and at large too much in the same sentence. But you get what I mean, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think so often, you know, the the message that we internalize at a very young age when we're told to respect others and taught the behavior around respecting others is that, you know, we also must, in order to be respectful, be tolerant of certain things that, that happen to us. And I think it's really easy to take that in um, and for that to result in this kind of reluctance to speak up in moments where, you know, our, our in certain ways, our bodily autonomy or um, you know, ourselves in other ways are being threatened. And so, um, yeah, I think there are plenty of reasons why it's not actually, it, there is no contradiction between the fact that your daughter was raised to be respectful and the fact that perhaps she might feel not okay speaking up now when men make her uncomfortable. Those two things um, absolutely coexist in our culture. They make sense to me. Yeah. And I think especially too, um, oftentimes when kids are taught like this kind of general respectfulness growing up and they're not also taught about like, what do I do when other people aren't respectful towards me? Um, especially when that involves big old systems like sexism, um, you know, part of that lesson goes untaught or rather they learned the wrong lesson because you didn't um, you didn't say, by the way, politeness is not always the highest good. 
uh, sexism exists. And oftentimes adult men sexualize young girls uh, and that's not okay. And in that case, you don't need to respect your elders. And I need to talk to you about ways that you'll feel like at least you can come to me as a child and say like, these adult men or these older men um, are are not, in fact, deserving of my respect, and I need additional help um, navigating this. Um, that that is an important part of the sort of respectfulness culture that I think sometimes kids don't get taught and need to. So again, that's not to say this is, in fact, all your fault. You need to build a time machine and go back to when she was 12 and redo everything. But I think... It will be helpful to bear that in mind as you kind of think, where is this coming from? I don't understand how this could have happened. I, I think it kind of makes sense that this is the situation she finds herself in now because she was raised to think, here is how you behave politely, but was not necessarily given a lot of tools or feedback, aside from maybe a handful of times that you stepped in and spoke sharply to men on her behalf when she was younger when you saw it. Um, I have lost the train of my sentence, so I'm just going to stop there. No, that made total sense to me. But yeah, this is something that she's going to need to figure out, talk about with her friends as well as with you. Uh, I think mostly all you can do is offer a really sympathetic ear, um, reiterate that you love and support her, um, say, do you ever feel comfortable uh, saying something, you know, direct, polite, and yet simple to somebody else about this? What would it feel like if you did that? Do you want to practice it with me? And don't um, stress too hard the need to be funny or witty in the moment so much as just communicate what you're doing right now needs to stop. Yeah. And and I would also say, you know, instead of offering your daughter um, you know, the, the something that you see as a solution right up front, which would be, you know, in the form of these like short, you know, quote unquote, like witty remarks to say to people. Um, you know, I completely agree that asking open ended questions is a really good idea. You know, I would I would ask the daughter what what things occur to you to say in the moment, what things occur to you to say afterward. You know, we all have those moments when we're so mad and, you know, hours go by and then we think of the absolutely perfect thing we could have said in that moment. You know, what are those things that come to mind? And, you know, why don't you say them in the moment? Um you know, what's in the way or, or what do you feel like is the best response? Um, yeah. What what, is, what do you feel like is the best response that occurs to you? Um, perhaps you don't feel like you can say it, but you can say it to me and, you know, we can talk through the possible solutions. Um, we can talk through all of the, um, you know, potential ways that this might go in various contexts. And so, yeah, I really think that going through all of these um, options with your daughter might be a good idea instead of necessarily coming to her and being like, I have it. The right. one thing. This is the thing that will work. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. And, you know, maybe to say something like, what is the mildest thing that you can imagine saying? What do you picture when you say that? Uh, what's the most extreme thing that you can imagine saying? What do you picture when you say that? So that she kind of at least gets a sense to sort of uh, talk through some possible options and what might feel good about them, what might feel frightening about them, and just really give her a lot of space. This is not a problem you're going to be able to fix for her. So really just I, I think as long as you can see your role as one of many people who can support her in this and offer her at least the opportunity to talk about it in a place where she knows she's not going to get additionally harassed or blamed um, and that beyond that, you don't have control over the situation. I think that will be your best way forward. I agree. Yeah. All right. So uh, good luck with that one. Keep you know keep us posted on how that conversation goes. Let us know what she's thinking, what you're thinking, how you're doing. Uh, I'd love to hear back from you. I will take our next letter, the subject of which is protecting my friend. Dear Prudence, I have two distinct friend groups who have tried to introduce each other over the years. One is more extroverted, and the other group is more introverted. Some folks in the introverted group tend to isolate themselves in presence of the other group, while others became fast friends, much to my delight. 
Eventually, I realize that it's okay if all of my friends aren't friends with each other, and I sometimes arrange hangouts with the two groups separately. There's one friend in the group of introverts who is extremely bad socially. I care about him a lot, but he touches people more than they're comfortable with, although, if asked, he backs off immediately and does other non-socially acceptable things without thinking about it. People in the other group actively don't want to hang out with him, even though he thinks they like him. I haven't told him, but one girl said she never wants to be in the same room as him, so I've arranged things that way. But he feels left out, and if I try to point out the negative behavior, he replies, that's how I am, there's no changing it. Should I tell him how other people feel? It's okay to keep folks separate when the two groups don't mesh, right? I'm not sure what to do here. I can't change him, but I also can't bring him around the people he makes uncomfortable. I'm a woman, and I'm more prone to protecting my female friends from people who make them uncomfortable, but I also feel bad for him. Wow. Yeah. The thing that struck me immediately about this letter is that combination of apparently when people say, stop touching me, he stops. But when you ask him about it, uh, like, after the moment, he says, I'm actually incapable of change, which feels odd to me because apparently he sometimes is. Yeah, there's something weird and very inconsistent in this letter. I, I found myself like really, really reaching for some kind of clarity about anything, whether it's what's going on with this um, with this friend and um, or, you know, what's going on with the letter writer, why the letter writer feels the need to um you know, sort of referee all of these interactions. I, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like no one in this uh, letter is super clear on what they want or even able to accurately assess like what their own, um, you know, what they're capable of. Right. Yeah. And the thing that struck me the most where there was vagueness, where I wanted detail was um, the non-socially acceptable things that he does. Because you go from you know, he touches people more than they would like, but he backs off when they say don't. Um, but then this kind of like blanket thing that could fall under so many behaviors could fall under that umbrella. Um, and then you just say, I have a friend who never wants to be in the same room with him again, which suggests to me, you know, you don't say that you don't trust her judgment or you think she's overreacting, which suggests to me that he has probably on more than one occasion done something like very much beyond the pale of like he just read the room incorrectly. So I, I really, you know, obviously we, we're not going to get to know the details here, but I encourage you to be specific with yourself um, and to ask if he has done something that you believe makes him unsafe for women to be around. Yeah. You know, let us applaud the girl in this letter who is extremely clear on what she wants, which mm-hmm. is to never be around this guy. Um, yeah, I, I read that and I was like, oh, good. OK, there's something to hold. Not good, but there's something to hold on to here, something that can be some sort of, you know, a guiding point for us. I think, you know, I would I would really um, interrogate the impulse that this letter writer has to, again, take care of everyone around them. I'm really not sure why it's up to them that everyone in this letter gets along. And I would ask, you know, what's being fulfilled for you when you feel like everyone in your life is getting along? You know, why why is it so important that there's no conflict? Because clearly there is conflict and, you know, clearly, at least to me, for good reason. Um, you know, I would ask, too, what you're actually saying when you say that this person is bad socially. Um, y- you know, I, I think that you need to look at the different boundaries that people have set and the different sort of like clear statements that people have given you and ask which one truly is more important to you, which is, you know, the way I see it, the choice between a man who says, I touch people inappropriately, I'm not going to change, 
and a woman who says, I can't be in the same room as this person because he has done things that um, I find reprehensible or, you know, not to read too far into it. But yeah, I would just ask which of those statements you're willing to give more weight and uh, really look at the reasons for why. Yeah, I think that's my read on that, too. I think especially it would be different if you said, um, I really value the time that he and I get to spend together and I feel guilty because I've been turning down opportunities to hang out one-on-one. That would be something that I would say there's something you can do about that that's a meaningful feeling that you need to give a lot of weight to. You just say that he feels left out and you feel bad. And I don't think that his standards for feeling left out are reasonable. It sounds like what what he says is feeling left out is, I don't get everything I want. I don't get to accompany you whenever you spend time with your other friends. I kind of have appointed you the unofficial social director of my own life. Um, and that, I would just say, does not fall under the category of something that you owe him as a friend. Uh, I think if he feels left out sometimes because he treats people in ways that make them not want to be around him, and he displays inconsistent or insufficient interest in changing his behavior so that people do want to be around him, that's not your problem to solve. Yeah. You know, I would ask, what are you trying to preserve in your relationship with this person? You know, I mean, I, I'm really wondering why it is that um, you would want to spend time with someone who you know has um, behaved, you know, inappropriately with people or in, in ways that make them uncomfortable or even violated. I mean, we don't really know what's what's happened here. Um but I would really ask what you're protecting and why and what you're getting out of that. You know, I, I really think that, you know, you need to look, you need to ask some really hard questions about your impulse to do that. Um, and I also want to say, too, that, you know, it is difficult to have a lot of people in your life that you feel like don't get along and to feel the pressure to make everybody mesh. Like, I, it's definitely something that I felt before. And, you know, I, I definitely understand the need to avoid conflict in that way and you know just you just want everybody to get along and it seems so clear to you that people can and that's great you know like there are so many ways that you see that you could fix it you know quote unquote but you can't fix anything you know everyone is going to do what they're going to do and everyone's going to feel about each other the way that they're going to feel there's just really nothing that you can do about this but you know listen like listen to people and believe them um and also look at your own reasons for behaving the way that you do. Right. You say that you only recently realized that it's okay if your friends aren't friends with each other. So my my read on this letter is that the letter writer is a little bit on the younger side um, and, and maybe kind of coming to some new realizations about friends and friendships and, and taking responsibility for other people's happiness uh, that, that are totally like age appropriate. So I get that this is something you're just kind of wading into possibly for the first time. But I would say in addition to it's okay if your friends aren't all friends with each other, it's also okay if a friend of yours has unreasonable expectations and you don't meet them, it's okay that your friend is unhappy about that. Um, that's not a problem you have to fix. Having a friend is not somebody who is pleased with you 100% of the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think, you know, I also wanted to bring up that there's um, there's this person in this letter who says that she never wants to be around um, this, this person ever again. I... I really want to pay some attention to that for a second. Um, I know that we can't really know what happened there, but I would really, really listen to that person, um, hear them out, and decide, you know, for yourself, like, what what role that testimony plays in this situation. I, you know, in other words, like, I, I just really think that you should listen um, really closely to someone who is very clear on what they need from this situation and who seems to be drawing a boundary with regards to their own safety. 
You know, I'd say this question of like, should I tell him how other people feel? You know, I I think first I would just assess the situation and assess whether there is risk to passing on certain um, feedback to to him. You know, I'm interested to know what you think, too, about this question of should I tell him, you know, what other people are talking about? Because I think that that's a complicated one. Um, I wouldn't suggest protecting him from that information necessarily, but I would suggest listening to the people who are uncomfortable with him to find out what their boundaries are and whether or not they actually want that feedback brought to him. Um, Because we don't know. We don't know if there's any kind of risk of uh, um, retribution or anything else. Yeah, I I think I I totally understand that impulse of should I tell him because the fantasy for the letter writer right now is I can fix this guy's problems if I work hard enough. Um, I can be so socially aware, so in tune with everyone's needs and wants. I can bend over so far backwards in so many different directions that I can be his social skills for him. Um, And and I would just say this does not seem to me to fall under the category of he has difficulty reading some social cues and asks for help, um, takes constructive criticism when it's offered to him and and works to uh, learn more about other people's limits that he's not able to intuit. Um, But that's not the case. You've already offered him feedback repeatedly um, and he has told you. Uh, you know, maybe aside from letting go of someone's arm, if they tell me to knock it off in public, I don't have any interest in modifying my behavior. You kind of, I don't think there's enough information you could give him that would make him want to change this. I think he has to want to change this himself. Um, So the idea that if, if only I could tell him what other people are saying, then like me, he would be so stricken that the thought of not being liked by everyone all the time, he would definitely start to change. But this guy is not the same as you. He is not embarrassed by the same things that embarrassed you. He's not worried about the same things that worry you. Um, and you you don't need to try to get him to care about this more. Um, I, I think you need to focus on spending a little time thinking about what you get out of doing all this work for him. Figure out how can I live my life in such a way that if he sometimes feels left out, that doesn't ruin my day. How can I draw appropriate boundaries with this guy so that I don't spend so much of my time worrying about whether or not he's happy? And how do I focus on spending time with people who, you know, generally respect one another's limits, limit, uh, listen when, when somebody says no to them? Um, and, you know, again, not that all your friendships have to be like everybody's 100 percent healthy and on top of their shit and doing everything right and never needs help or never makes mistakes. That's not what I'm suggesting. But, um, you know, spend a little more time with the friends who um, give you something in return rather than kind of endlessly make implicit or explicit demands on you. Yeah, definitely. And I also think when it comes to the level of feedback or, you know, what what information to send this guy's way, I think it is an option for the letter writer to um, cut back on the time that they are spending with him, you know, for for any number of reasons, for very good reasons. And and to say something along the lines of, um, you know, if he notices, which presumably, um, you know, he might if the letter writer is concerned about that. Um, I think that if he notices that to say, you know, I've talked to you about this thing where you touch people um, inappropriately or without their consent and you have been defensive about it and you say you're not interested in changing. And that makes me feel bad. That makes me uncomfortable. You know, I don't I don't really I don't like that. And you're allowed to say that, you know, you're allowed to say that without going into all of the social dynamics of, you know, such and such said they don't like you and such and such refuses to spend time with you. Like you don't need to be at the center of this, you know, web of connections and everyone's reactions to this person. All you need to do is say to him, I don't like this and I don't like the conversations we've had about it. And so maybe it's something we can address at some point and 
maybe we can talk about it. But right now, like, this is what happens. These are the consequences when you don't want to change your behavior that's making people really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm right there with you. So, again, I'm not we're not saying you have to drop this guy uh, right now uh, or that he is an irredeemably bad person. But uh, you get to, uh, you know, not only is it okay to keep different friends in different places and not kind of try to force them into the same room when they're not interested in it, it is also okay for you to say, if he asks, yeah, I'm spending a little less time with you because we had a conversation about something you do that's really hard for me and and upsets other people and, and makes them feel unsafe around you. And you told me you don't want to change. And as a result, I don't want to spend as much time with you. And if his response to that is some variation of you're wrong for wanting that from me or nobody understands me or you've turned against me uh, rather than man, I really want to think about why I'm behaving this way or whether or not I'm interested in changing, you know, that tells you about what he values in your friendship, which is not like two adults, uh, you know, being there for each other so much as you helping him get what he wants. And I would say that that is not a great friend. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Good luck with that one. Uh, I wish you the best. I, I, this is hard stuff to learn. And, and I have a lot of sympathy for trying to figure out how do I say no to my friends? It's often really hard to say no to our friends, especially when we don't have much of a history with that. So it's going to be new and it's going to be tough, but I think you can do it. Mm-hmm. Would you read our next letter? I would. Worried birth mom. My beautiful, brilliant, sensitive teenage daughter has been slowly coming out to me for a couple months now. She has yet to say the words, mom, I'm a lesbian, trans, or queer, but she's only 14. She may still be figuring out exactly what it is she needs to tell me. No matter what, I love her just the way she is and want to make sure she's safe and happy. The problem is, I'm not her legal mother. When I was 18, I was sexually assaulted. She is the product of my assault. I was part of a very conservative religious sect, and she was adopted by my minister's brother and his wife, who are both very active and outspoken members of my former religious community. I'm an out bisexual woman, and between the fallout from my assault and my sexual orientation, I'm barely on speaking terms with anyone from that time in my life. One of the subtle clues she's dropped has suddenly put me in a panic. A few weeks ago, she added me as a friend on Facebook. She had another profile she shared with her younger sister, so I didn't think much of it. Maybe her parents finally loosened some internet restriction or something. No. This is a top-secret Facebook profile, blocked from all the rest of the family, reserved for me and a bunch of other people I do not know, all of whom are very queer-presenting, some of whom seem far older than her. I don't know who these people are. I don't know if she knows them in real life. I don't know anything about it, except that all the content on this new Facebook profile is very political, somewhat anti-religious, flamboyantly queer, and generally the sort of thing that would get her a one-way ticket to conversion camp if her parents or her broader community ever found out. Prudy, it makes me sick to think of anything happening to my perfect girl. It makes me sick with guilt to think that the choices I made put her into a dangerous situation. Of course, my mom instincts are going bonkers at the slightest hint of unsafe online behavior, which a secret Facebook profile with a bunch of much older friends is definitely hinting at. But despite the fact that all of my instincts say she's mine and I want to help and protect her, the law says she isn't mine anymore. What do I do? I want to be a safe person to her, but I'm also scared for her on multiple fronts. If I out her secret Facebook page to her parents, I could do so much damage to my little baby queer. But if I don't, I'm afraid I'm leaving her open to online predators who could take advantage of a very young girl in a very vulnerable situation. And in the middle of all this, I want to be a safe and supportive person so that even if she is outed and the worst-case scenario triggers, she knows that at least one person she cares about will always love and protect her. Oh man, this one just kills me. 
Me too. <laughs> this, I mean, this this oh. letter writer is just going through it and and blaming herself for so much in a way that I just wish I could like lift from her. And I know that's not how you know self recrimination or or guilt works, but I just want to start by saying um, I, I I think you know this on some level. I hope this doesn't sound condescending, but uh, you know when you say that the choices you made put her in a dangerous situation, like, I just want to stress, like, you were 18, you were sexually assaulted, you were part of an incredibly controlling religious sect that did not give you choices. Like, you you, you were not making choices casually or lightly or, or uh, with a lot of options at that time. So I realize that won't make that voice in your head go away, but to whatever extent you can, when there's a part of you that says, this is my fault, please just try to remind yourself. Um, try not to imagine that that was you at that time. Imagine somebody else. Like imagine if if you saw an 18-year-old girl who'd been recently sexually assaulted, who was at the mercy of this controlling religious cult. I don't think that you would be so hard on her as you are on this past version of yourself. And I would urge you to at least try to be kinder to yourself because this is just not your fault. Um, it's awful. It's terrible. It's tragic, but it's not your fault. Yeah. The the fact that this mother would feel that this birth mother would feel in any way like um, she was responsible for anything that's going on here um, really breaks my heart. It's so clear that not only is that not the case, but the opposite is true, which is that your presence in your daughter's life is an active space of safety and support and comfort for her. Otherwise, she would not have sent you the secret Facebook profile. You know, it's just it's so clear to me that this mother's role in her daughter's life is one that is positive and loving and only doing good things. Um, you know, so I, I would say not only should you not feel guilty um, for all of the reasons that you just said, but you should feel um you know, like you are making an actively good difference here, which you are just by surviving and by being an out bisexual person and, um, you know, being someone who your daughter wants to come to with this. Yeah. And I would say in the long term, you know, I, I don't know if the two of you ever talk about what what she wants to do when she turns 18. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that you two need to start making a plan for her to move in with you. I don't even know if that's possible or desirable. But to, to think of like, th there is an end date for the degree to which her um, guardians can control her access to the outside world. And the day will come when the fact that you you were not a legal parent um, will no longer matter in the same way. And so I think to, to be working towards that day will help you a lot in terms of feeling like, um, it will not be like this forever. Uh, the two of us are going to be able to connect in a new way that's not mediated by um, these guardians in the same way in the future. That's my hope for you. So as to the the fears and the panic, I, I totally get where this is coming from. Um, it, all of this is bringing up fears of like, is she going to be put in a situation like the one that I was put in where she is, you know, uh, forced into something deeply restrictive or harmful or, or made to do something she doesn't want to do by her uh, incredibly controlling religious parents. Um, so I really get that a lot of these fears and panics are just big and, and primal for you. Um, but I, I do want to reassure you, at least what you've described in your letter here, I don't believe that your daughter is in anything like immediate danger uh, from, from what you've seen based on her Facebook profile. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think I really understand um, that there's a lot of fear right now. I think that it's possible that there might be a general fear for 
what's going on with this daughter and, um, you know, the fact that she's not surrounded necessarily in a, by a supportive environment, I think that fear might be getting directed at this Facebook profile in a way that is a little bit displaced. You know, the the description that we have here just doesn't sound like anything that could bring um, a huge level of risk to the daughter, at least right now, like based on the information we have. And I, I think it's, you know, important to sort of take a step back and accurately assess what's actually going on here, right? Like ac- accurately assess the risk. I remember, um, you know, sort of growing up, I, I heard a lot of talk about um, – you know, sort of unsafe internet practices. And there was this idea of sort of like the faceless stranger who's going to reach through the internet and do bad things. And that's not to say that, you know, online spaces haven't been, you know, rife with people who use them for abusive purposes. But right now, what it sounds like your daughter is doing is, ex, you know, exploration. Um, and it sounds like your daughter's seeking out an online community that can give her a level of support that she doesn't currently have at home. You know, in my view, that's actually a quite positive thing. Right. And I would maybe have different advice for you if you said, I, you know, based on this Facebook profile, I believe that my daughter has like a 28 year old like boyfriend or girlfriend um, that that would feel really, really different. Or like, um, you know, I, I know that they're like, you know, there's there's like pictures of them all like doing drugs together in a way that would feel really different. But I would say um, the fact that she's friends with older queer people on Facebook um because you, you don't say anything about like the way that they talk to her or the kind of events that they go to together. My read on this is that this is much more just like general community support, um, which often like in various gay and queer communities involves intergenerational friendship and mentorship relationships that uh, often get read as inherently predatory because like, you know, we're a community that people are not born into. We're a community where like we learn about history and about traditions and about various cultures by learning them from our queer elders. Um, And and that's often gotten used to kind of paint this myth of like an older gay or queer person as an inherent predator. And and again, I I don't I don't say that to say like uh, nobody older and queer has ever acted in an unsafe or predatory way, just that I think it's possible even as a bisexual woman for for you to have internalized some like homophobic, transphobic, queerphobic ideas about, well, what kind of, you know, an older queer person would want to be friends with like a queer teenager in a really difficult position. And I think the answer to that is a lot of us, because many of us were that teenager. And we know that that teenager does not have help or support in their immediate family, and they need lifelines. So again, I'm not saying they're all just angels who are basically social workers. Um, I'm just saying that so far, you don't have reason to assume that their interest in your teenage daughter is inherently sexual um, or dangerous. Um, and so I would say here, right now, the important thing is to um, uh, just stay curious, stay open-minded. It's really good that she shared this with you because this means she thinks these are relationships I'm comfortable with my mom seeing. This isn't something she wants to hide from you, the parent that she trusts. So that suggests to me Um, Again, unless you were to get information that suggests otherwise, um, that these are friendly, social, possibly very like distant relationships. I'm friends with lots of people on Facebook that I'm not especially close with. We don't like regularly chat every day. We kind of keep tabs on what's going on. Oftentimes those friendships on Facebook are about like keeping tabs on upcoming queer events or queer support. Um, So it doesn't it's not the same thing as like they're all in her phone and she's calling them every day. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would I would ask um, 
you know, the letter writer, why this is, isn't seen as an opportunity. I mean, to me, this is an amazing opportunity to open up a conversation with your daughter about um, online safety and, um, you know, what the purpose of this Facebook profile is. And I'm not suggesting, you know, she's 14. I'm not suggesting that you get super into, um, you know, a lecture on online safety that might um, end up isolating her wanting to not talk to you about this. But I do think that you could say something like, hey, you know, like I, you added me, like, this is cool. Like, I saw your post about such and such thing. And I'm wondering, you know, like, what kinds of conversations are you having with folks? You know, have you, yeah, like, I, I would just ask her why she made that profile. I think it's a pretty fair thing to um, ask her about, given that, you know, she had this other profile. Now she doesn't. I think that it's a, you know, she friended you, presumably, because she wants you to see it. And I think that, um you know, I'd be willing to guess that the daughter would be really open to that conversation. If she weren't, then I, I don't think that this would be happening, you know. So I think that this is a really, really good opportunity to ask some questions about, you know, what's going on and, oh, like, has that been good? Have you had any good conversations? And I think you can trust that she will tell you what's going on. Um, I would also ask, you know, I'm so interested in the fact that this um, mother is a bisexual woman herself, you know. Like, I would, I would ask, um, you know, to look back at your own history at you know, what was going on with you around the time that you were figuring this stuff out at whatever age that happened. You know, there are a lot of different points in our lives where we're, you know, um, realizing different things about our sexuality and our gender. And I would, you know, I would ask, like, can you, what part of this can you empathize with? You know, what part of self-exploration as a teenager can you empathize with? And can you, you know, can you see how it would be really incredibly helpful to have somebody who, is older or somebody who's not, you know, we don't know if every single one of these Facebook friends is much, much older. Um, but wouldn't it be helpful to have somebody to talk to? Can you imagine what those conversations would have looked like for you or what they did look like for you? And so I think that this this mother is really, really well situated to um, understand this and empathize with it. If, you know, if they can get past the fear um, that they have, or at least clarify where that fear is coming from, which is, I think, more to do with the conservative religious sect that you know, their daughter is surrounded by than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just say, again, the 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 reason that these fears are coming up now make a ton of sense because you've just gotten kind of concrete evidence that your daughter is vulnerable, not just hints, but like concrete evidence that she is vulnerable to her guardians in a new way. Um, and that reminds you of you were at a very similar age when you were very vulnerable and the adult in your life did not protect and help you. So it makes a ton of sense to me that you feel scared and panicked right now. And I would say a, a lot of these bigger fears, I hope that you have, if not a therapist, at least um, adult friends in your own life. And again, I wouldn't share anything with people who are in any contact with people back home, but it doesn't sound like your social circle now is at all connected with the people back home. So if not a therapist, at least with some of your friends, just to talk through, this brings up fear and panic and memories of my own vulnerability as a teenager. And I need to talk about this with someone who's not my kid. Um, and for you to have the space to do that, I want that for you. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the conversation to have with your daughter, I think I would thank her for sharing this with you. Um, tell her that you honor this trust, that you appreciate it. Uh, and yeah, maybe just ask a little bit like, you know, what do you want for us in terms of how we can connect on here? I want you to know a couple of things. One is that I, I would not ever share this with your guardians. Uh, um, and I also want you to know, like, as your parent, I'm going to have different concerns and, and objectives than other friends might. So if I, you know, I worry sometimes and I just want to make sure, like, what are you, how are you doing? Do you feel like you have support? Do you feel like 
people are behaving trustworthily towards you. Um, you know, ask a little bit more. I'd love to know a little bit more about what's been meaningful and helpful to you about this. Um, all of that's good stuff to talk about with her. And I think will help put some of your fears at rest um, when you when you get more of a sense from her about uh, how she's feeling. But yeah, the you know, the very political, anti-religious, flamboyantly queer stuff makes a ton of sense given her context. So if there's a part of you that's worried that like, I don't know where this is coming from. This seems a little extreme. Maybe I sympathize with a lot of this, but not quite so intensely. I wonder if it's coming from some of these older people. I would just say it sounds totally intuitive to me that she would be all of those things right now um, based on the home situation you described. But good luck. Um, I, I just want good things for both of you. And I hope the next four years fly about like the wind and she can get out of there. I think that's yeah, it. Absolutely. I kind of feel like we could talk about this letter forever, but we should uh, we should keep. Oh, going. I know I could. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the next one is me. So I will go ahead and read this. The subject is just want to be wives already. Dear Prudence, for over two years, I've been dating the love of my life, who's non-binary and trans femme, both academics slash artists slash activists and have great teaching jobs and successful creative practices and a lovely queer community here in the Midwest. The problem is my family who I love but are very queer and transphobic. They have said many times that they will never accept my dating or marrying a trans person, have refused to meet or even acknowledge my girlfriend. If I bring my girlfriend up in conversation, my parents get upset and say that I'm ruining the time we have together since I live far away and visit only a few times a year. My girlfriend is hurt by my family's words and actions, but they also support me trying to have a relationship, especially since there's a history of estrangements in my family. My girlfriend and I are planning on getting engaged by the end of the year, and I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this with my family. I've been thinking of using this engagement as a way to set firmer boundaries with them, telling them I will not respond to anything from you besides congratulations, for instance. My parents have told me over and over again that it's their right as parents to tell me what they think, and that it's my responsibility as their offspring to listen, and that they have felt very hurt and disrespected by the fact that I have not listened to their, quote, advice about my relationship. Their advice, of course, being, get out. Do you have any advice on setting firm yet loving boundaries? Ugh, this was tough. Tough but simple. I think the letter writer has a really accurate assessment of the situation, and I think the plan makes sense. Um, I, I think I feel like they kind of know that this will probably result in an estrangement uh, of at least a couple of years. And I understand that it feels painful because you've invested a lot of time and energy in avoiding that estrangement and that, you know, your family already has a history of people kind of cutting each other off and you want to break that cycle. But I also think you've correctly identified that you have to draw a line somewhere. Getting engaged is probably a good place to draw that line. Um, you are not, in fact, going to take their advice and you are not going to put your girlfriend in a situation where they have to repeatedly hear uh, you two need to get divorced. So, yeah, I, I think the 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 boundary you have outlined here is firm and loving and you will simply have to figure out how to get the support you need to enforce it. Yeah, we're on the same page here. Um, your family, your parents do not think that you're a full person. And unfortunately, there's really no way to make someone think that you're a full person. You just need to be a full person who sets their own boundaries and knows what is okay and what's not okay in their lives. And, you know, it's a perfectly valid decision to not allow the kind of energy that they're bringing um, into your life and into your relationship. You know, I, I found myself wondering how these conversations have gone so far, you know, because the letter writer is still in touch with their parents but describes these really distressing sounding conversations. And I just, you know, I wonder if the letter writer has been listening patiently as the parents rant about this and about the responsibility they have to listen to all of this criticism or and all of this hateful criticism. 
Um, you know, I wonder how much the letter writer has found themselves able to push back. And I, and I only I only say that to say that now is definitely a good time. Any time is a good time. You know, it doesn't even need to be around an engagement. You don't need to have an excuse um, to stand up for yourself um, in this particular way. And I also say that knowing that there are so many different situations in which it's really not um, safe or realistic to, you know, assert that kind of boundary with your parents, you know, if you are relying on them for financial support or, you know, in some other way, like doing that could put you at risk. But it sounds like this letter writer has a very autonomous life um, and just has every reason to be confident in, you know, saying what behavior from their parents is okay and not okay. Right. And it's not just the transphobia, although I think the transphobia is certainly sufficient. Um, It's the fact that your parents have just come out and said, we believe that you are eternally our infant. Um, No matter how old you get, it is always going to be your job to uh, listen to the wild shit that we say um, and execute it. Um, And we do not concede that you will ever be old enough that you are allowed to make your own decisions without our just absolutely tearing them down. Like, it's not even like we want to tell you one time that we're transphobic and then after that you'll just have to remember that we already gave you that information. Um, But they're like, we actually have an eternal right to bring it up every time. Um, And that just, to me, tells you the terms upon which they're willing to have a relationship with you, which is as long as you are willing to accept that they will never treat you like a full adult um, and allow them to say eternally transphobic and hurtful things about the person you're choosing to spend your life with. That's their terms. And and that's not to say, so therefore, estrangement's just going to be easy, simple, and fun, and you're going to have a great time. Of course it's painful. Um, and the difference between having a couple of visits a year, accepting that your relationship is really strained and painful in a lot of ways, but also still hearing their voices and occasionally to occasionally getting to have a fun conversation about like a fun vacation memory or some book you're all enjoying. Um, you know, that's a loss. That's a real loss. And I get that. But um, I, I just I, I don't even think this is going to be the kind of boundary that you're going to need to enforce a whole lot because I think they're just going to say, don't be ridiculous. Like you'll say, look, I'm getting engaged. I, I'm only going to listen to congratulations. And they'll say, what a stupid thing to say. I can't believe you would ask that of us. Of course, we're not going to do that. They're also they're going to do their very best to make you feel like you're a bad person um, for doing it. And like you are doing something that is in some way, you know, actively harmful or at the very least like unloving. And I just really want to assert that um, stating what you need from them in a clear way and knowing yourself well enough to do that is loving. It's a loving act to be honest with them in that way, you know, in any relationship. But, it, you know, in this situation in particular, that is a loving thing to do. So I just want to, um, you know, bring up that idea because I think it's really easy to lose sight of that if you are trying to do something that feels really hard and something for which your family and your parents in particular are trying to make you feel bad about it. Um, you know, they're they're asking, why won't you love us in the way that we say you should? And you are loving them. You're loving them in a way that makes you feel like a whole person. Yeah. Whew. Good luck with that one. Let us know how that goes. Um, I hope you can get all the support you need in uh, dealing with the estrangement you've been working so hard to avoid for the last couple of years. But yeah, I think it's time. Um, and, and in some ways, I think you might find it a relief. Um, there will be pain that comes with that. But I also think that um, there will be ways in which you feel uh, relieved and like something of a burden has been lifted and you can deal with a different kind of grief. Um, and I hope that that 
your engagement and your uh, marriage goes beautifully. And and I can't wait for the two of you to be wives. So yeah, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Um, this next one. I'm glad somebody asked this because I feel like I often get letters where people uh, throw around the phrase toxic person in such a way that's like, obviously, we all know what this means and agrees that there's a universal definition for it and that it's a good phrase to use. Um, and I don't. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Yeah, yeah. It's, a uh, you know, toxic is a dangerously vague word. Um Uh, So anyways, here we go. The subject is depressed person or, quote, toxic loser. Dear Prudence, how does one reconcile the desire and need to be supportive towards a loved one struggling with depression and all that that entails, sometimes self-absorption, stasis, a lack of energy, hopelessness, etc., and the need to protect oneself from being taken advantage of, or at least feeling that way sometimes, due to the lack of reciprocity, gratitude, and improvement from the depressed person? There's a prevailing school of thought that true friends are loyal and don't give up on people. There's also a lot of literature out there on how to support people with depression, long lists of do's and don'ts of what to say or do, how to act, etc., that can frankly feel overwhelming. There's a seemingly competing school of thought around being empowered to cut toxic people from one's life, to not put up with poor treatment, to kick losers to the curb, and go and live one's best life without them. But a lot of depressed people would, by many people's definitions, be considered, quote, toxic losers when they're in the depths of their illness. Cutting them out seems cruel and potentially tragic. The truth that seems rarely acknowledged is that depression can be alarmingly persistent for some people, even if they acknowledge their illness and seek, can afford, and are receiving treatment. It doesn't always remit, at least for the long term. And when it's there, they're often not particularly kind or thoughtful or productive or good friends. The illness can make that difficult or impossible. What are your thoughts and advice? How does one tell the difference between a, quote, toxic person and a good person turned, quote, toxic due to major depression? What if they just can't shake it despite trying different treatments? How long does a friend stick it out? Forever? Set a certain deadline? But deadlines don't really matter to depressed people. In what ways can a friend meaningfully and healthily help, especially as time goes on and little changes? How does one deal with the guilt and fear if one does give up on a depressed person? Cut them out? So much advice out there just seems oversimplified, characterizing people as good versus bad and assuming a major illness will magically go away with the right treatment, a treatment that in reality may not exist or be remotely accessible if it does. I love this question. Ooh, tell us a little more. I feel like I kind of monologued the last few, so you start us off. Well, I love this question because it's not even attached to any particular thing happening in the letter writer's life. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very possible that it is, but we, you know, don't have that description. What we have is a quest for higher knowledge um, <laughs> and a quest for definitions and for having all the answers. And I, you know, found myself reading this almost like it belonged to some kind of problem set. I was like, you know, if if A is true and B is not, you know, <laughs> I was, you know, really um, fascinated by the letter writer laying out all of these possibilities, you know, all of these like little points of evidence that should point in one direction or the other. Um, you know, I, I'm really wondering why the letter writer needs this to be a clearly defined um, question with a clearly defined solution, because it's not. Like, there is no answer here. Um, or, you know, there is an answer. There, there are many, many, many different answers highly dependent on context. But that's how I would start off. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I I agree too that the instincts of like, I don't think there needs to be a rule is just a good one. 
Um, I, I think that there are often general principles that we can abide by when it comes to our friendships. I certainly think there are kind of universal limits, like when it comes to physical abuse and so on. Um, but beyond some of that, there's a lot fewer rules than I think a lot of us like to think. Um, so, so mostly I would just stress that, um, you, you do not need to. And I, I think the letter writer is always already leaning towards that, right? Of like, I don't want to have like a big sorting mechanism that either like uh, puts people down on the side of deserving of empathy, good depressed person, or not deserving of empathy, toxic person should be flung as far away from me as possible. Um, I, I think that's good to want to move away from that. And, and, and to that end, I just, I, I have not yet heard the phrase toxic person used especially compellingly. Like either... The word abusive works better. And in that case, like there's a much clearer uh, set of priorities, which is your own safety um, and, and finding ways to help yourself get away from an abuser. Um, or it, it can be kind of attached to a more nebulous series of like a dynamic that I don't like or behaves selfishly or I have trouble saying no or, you know, some combination of all those things and more. And that, um, is often harder to navigate because often I think if we don't feel comfortable saying no or asking for what we want or setting our own boundaries, we want like, okay, well, how can I say that this person is in a category where I no longer have to have empathy for them because then I can just, you know, discomfort free walk away instead of wrestling with saying no to someone and letting them be upset um, and just letting that one ride. Yeah. And also in this question, you know, there is some sort of search for justification in some way, I think. You know, it's there's this question of if I have decided to cut someone out of my life, what is a good enough reason to do that, even if doing so will cause them some distress or be or, you know, will be negative, a negative experience for them in some way? Um, you know, can I apply this label of toxic person so that I don't need to feel bad about it or like I can feel um justified in this behavior that I feel guilty about for any number of reasons. And so, yeah, I mean, I would I would look at that first. I would look at the impulse to do that. I mean, the truth is obviously so much more complicated than that. And I think that um, in any kind of situation where you're considering cutting someone out, um, whether it's a permanent or a temporary thing, I think, first of all, you're I just want to assert that everyone has the agency to do that. You know, like as a human being, you are able to do that at any point, really for any reason. You just are. That's part of being a person and making decisions. But I also think that you can empower yourself to trust your own reasons for doing that. You know, there is no like, you know, with with the certain exceptions that you're bringing up, you know, I think that there are definitely some hard limits when it comes to how people behave toward us that are sort of universally um, accepted as being completely not okay. But there are also these stickier situations where a person is making you feel bad and you're not sure it's a good enough reason to not be interacting with them anymore. And, you know, you're allowed to make those decisions whether or not some higher authority would back you up. You know, you are the higher authority. Right. So, uh, yeah, so much to, to all of this. And I would just say, like, there's a couple of general principles that I think are good to abide by. One is that um, it is okay for you to uh, either say no to a particular request or demand um, or to speak up when something hurts you, whether or not somebody else is depressed, has been diagnosed with depression, is receiving treatment for depression, is going through a really hard time right now, whatever else. Um you can have ex like total empathy for someone and you can still say um, what you said just now hurt me. I need a little time um, or, uh, you know, any variation thereof. So so just because you have 
compassion and care for somebody else's uh, own experiences, you still get to, no matter what, if they do or say something that hurts you or that you just like can't say yes to, to just say, I can't do that. I'm sorry. Or this really hurt me and I'm going to go take a walk or let's see each other again when we've both cooled down. Like those are available to you regardless of, of what the situation is. Now, I'm not saying that like if you're in a person in a crisis moment and they're saying really intense stuff that you need to like immediately leave the room. But you do have, I think, a lot of um, leeway over the course of like a long-term friendship um, to still set limits. That's okay. You don't have to say either I set no limits or I set the ultimate limit of cutting somebody off. Yeah, that also gets to something that I was thinking about reading this letter, which was, um, you know, I was seeing in this letter a desire to, you know, categorize relationships as either active or someone I have cut off. And I just want to acknowledge that friendships go through so many stages over the course of our lives, right? You know, there might be a point in time at which you don't feel comfortable or able to engage with this friend in the same way that you always did. And that may change, too, in the future, you know, if you take the amount of time that you need and take care of yourself in that way. And so I would say that, you know, I would just discourage the kind of thinking that any particular decision is permanent, you know, like life is long and relationships change all the time and friendships change all the time. And I I just think that you can be clear at every stage of the way about what you're able to offer this person. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that. I also wanted to say that you know, if if you find yourself in a position where you need to withdraw from someone who is going through a really, really difficult time, I think it's a really compassionate thing to do to try to also give them some options, you know, to recognize that perhaps you are leaving some space and that space needs to be filled by other means of support. And so, you know, again, it depends on the situation, but I think that if someone is having a really hard week and you are not able to be there for them as much as they want, you know, you can say like, who else are you calling? Like, who else is there to support you? Are you, um, you know, eating well enough? Are you sleeping well enough? Like, I want you to know that I care about you and I care about whether or not you're taking care of your own needs. And, you know, and I love you. Yeah. So, yeah, that's also an option. I would say, too, the one thing that strikes me about the last paragraph that I want to address is, um, let's see, what if they just can't shake it despite trying different treatments? Because that feels a little bit less like, potentially somebody in my life who has depression is doing or saying something that's hurting me and I want to know if it's okay to like gently push back. Uh, And that feels a little bit more like how do I deal with my own internal sense of frustration or guilt that my depressed friend is not better? And if that's something that sometimes comes up for you, I think it's really important to uh, separate that out from their behaviors or actions. Like if there's a part of you that just feels exhausted or tired or frustrated with the fact that your depressed friend is still depressed, um, that's something that you can take space for to, you know, go recharge on your own, vent in a journal or to a therapist. Um, But Uh, don't make them responsible for your response to their depression. I realize that that's like a a long answer, but like if you're experiencing some compassion fatigue, that's different than if they said or did something hurtful or unkind towards you. Um, and, And you need to be able to identify those moments and say, I need to take a little break from this. I love you. I'll be able to check in with you again in a couple of days or later or, or whenever, but not to say you are exhausting, you need to fix your depression, or you need to get a certain degree of better, or I can't ever talk to you again. So much as just, if you need to say, I'm just not going to be available to take a certain kind of call for a while, and I will let you know when I am again, say that rather than, 
uh, ghost somebody or disappear or look for a reason to kind of end the friendship so you don't have to acknowledge your own limitations. It's okay that you sometimes feel frustrated uh, or exhausted about somebody else's problems. Uh, I just don't want you to think that means I need to find a reason to say that they are in fact not really trying hard enough so I can get rid of them and thereby my own guilt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I also, you know, I saw, uh, you know, this phrase, like, how does one deal with the guilt and fear if one does give up on a depressed person? And I feel like the letter writer is asking, how does one make it go away? And I would just say to that, you know, there's no way to make it go away. I I think that you need to, I think we all need to sort of sit with the fact that we're going to feel guilty and fearful if we're, you know, doing something, if we're asserting ourselves in a way that might not be natural to us or setting a boundary that feels, um, you know, tricky or complicated, it's going to feel a little weird or it, you know, might feel a little weird and you probably will end up feeling fearful. And I would encourage you to, um, you know, just really let yourself know that and let yourself feel it and, you know, talk talk about it with whoever is appropriate, you know, whoever is there to support you in your own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, so these are just like some big picture ones. I'm glad we're kind of ending on um, a really concrete issue that I think... uh, Highly specific question. Highly specific question with, at least to me, a highly specific answer. Uh, And I think it's your turn to read the letter. Would you be so good? Yes. My husband and I both took shortcuts in our careers that led to economic stability instead of personal creativity. He was openly miserable in his, while mine left me numb. We crunched numbers and realized if we downsized, we could live on my salary alone and continue to pay off our student loans. My husband wanted to take a try at his own freelance career. We negotiated a three-year trial run, then it would be my turn as I wanted to go back for my master's or try and switch my career focus. The three years are up. My husband has had a few successes, but they are not enough to live on. He refuses to seek another job now. He, quote, deserves, unquote, more time. I feel completely betrayed and bamboozled. I've been promoted at work, but it is all repetitive, painful office politics. It drains me physically and emotionally to go into work every day. I can't get rid of the thought in the back of my head chanting, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. In a few years, it will be very close for us to decide the kids' question or miss the window entirely. I want to try my dreams first, even if I fail. My husband says we have good medical insurance and retirement options with my job. It doesn't make, quote, financial sense for me to quit. We haven't had a vacation in five years, my car can legally vote, and we live in a cramped two-bedroom apartment where the second bedroom is my husband's office. I love my husband, but I can't get rid of my resentment. Am I crazy to insist on the deal we made? No. Mm, I'd like a word or two with your husband. (laughs) I'm mad at him. Yeah. It's not okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's just acknowledge that this person I've decided is a fun person because the line "my car can legally vote" completely endeared me to them. Yeah, I, you know, it will perhaps not surprise anyone who has ever listened to this podcast that I am on the letter writer side here. But yeah, I found this. Um, you know, you're being charming even in a very frustrating situation, and that's wonderful. Now yeah, for the not I love so this wonderful, letter yeah, the not so wonderful stuff. Um. This is an unbelievably frustrating situation, and um, I am so sorry. I think the one upside here is that you two have not had children yet. Not because I think you need to leave tomorrow, but I think it may become a bigger possibility as you continue to have this conversation. And I I would rather that it happened over a job than over kids. Um, 
we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but, you know, so this happened three years ago. You say he was openly miserable in his job while mine left me numb. Numb's not real far from openly miserable. Like, numb is just a particular coping strategy with open misery. Uh, so, like, I, you know, it's not as if you were like, my job was fine. Like, you, you guys made a difficult compromise at the time that I think your husband was aware that you were not, like, my job is okay, I can handle it. You were like, I will cling to listlessness for three years. Um, and, and that, to me, just says a lot about, like, his kind of dismissal of um, your ability to get through a day. Does, does that, like, strike you as an accurate reading on that particular sentence? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there's some sort of, there was some sort of implicit decision that uh, numb is a more tolerable condition for the next three years than openly miserable, whereas, you know, they're basically, in my opinion, the same thing. Like, neither of them were happy at their jobs. I'm wondering why he was able to go first. You know, and why three years? Three years is quite a long time. I was going to say, like, I, I understand that, you know, somebody has to go first. I won't quibble with that part. But a three-year trial run, like, that's incredible. I, I, I mean, six months would have been closer to what I would have recommended had you two written to me then. Um, to ask for a three-year trial run and then come back and say, I'm nowhere near where I need to be. Like, if your husband were your employee who had said, like, boss, put me on this project, give me three years, ask no questions, and then at the end of three years, I'm going to tell you <laughs> I've gotten nowhere, this guy would be fired. And again, I don't I don't always want to encourage people to approach their marriages like they would approach uh, an employment situation. But um, given that this was kind of like a joint professional decision you two made together, his um, his end of the professional deal has been... Uh, he has squandered it. He has done very, very badly. Yeah. And I think your point in doing that is just to remove some of the emotional context of the situation, which might be making this less clear to the letter writer than um, it deserves to be. Because, yeah, I mean, if someone else came to you, I would ask the letter writer, if someone else came to you with this situation or anything remotely similar, you know, my partner has asked me to do something that makes me miserable for three years. And then at the end of the three years, he is becoming belligerent. Um, and insisting that I continue doing the thing that makes me miserable, wouldn't you think that something was wrong with that? You know, like wouldn't wouldn't you uh, wouldn't you say you should not be with this person, or at the very least, you know, question the reasons why you two are together? Um, yeah, it's just it's so breathtakingly selfish that this person would demand more time um, and say that he quote deserves more time is just yeah. You know, it really why? doesn't make financial what sense have you done? for you to quit because. I have failed to deliver on my promise to come up with any sort of financial contribution that's meaningful to our home is a really, you know, the the amount of confidence it takes to say something like that is high, perhaps too high. I believe that your husband could stand to have slightly less confidence. So, um, you know, obviously there's a part of me that just wants to say, you know, like throw his stuff out into the street and start a new life. And, and I understand that that is not that your life is not a cartoon and I, I don't want to just suggest that you um, throw stuff of his out the window. Um, I do think, however, it's important to challenge his uh, um, statement that this is a, a an issue of just financial sense. Um, I think you can go back and say, this is actually not just about financial sense. This is about my ability to get through the day without wanting to like blow up my own life. 
um, I need to quit this job. I want to try to do this in a way that gives you as much advance notice as possible. Uh, I'm going to do my best to try to find another job before I quit. Um, I want to try to line up, if that's not possible, as much freelance work as I can so that I'm able to contribute. Um, But I will be quitting my job. Um, I hope that you look for a job as well. If you don't, I'm still going to quit my job. And I need you to know that. I want to be really open about that. Um, This is something that I have to do. Um, It's something that has made the last three years possible. Um, And unfortunately, I don't need your permission to do it. I would love to find a way to get through this together as a team. I don't want to be at odds, especially during such a difficult, stressful time. Um, But this is not something that I'm going to wait for your permission to do. Um, And how he responds to that, I think, will be really telling. Like if you say to him, uh, I can barely get through the day. I'm physically and emotionally drained. I'm exhausted. I'm three years past numb. This is a matter of like my well-being and my hope for the future. And he still says like, nope, I still want to like have my half-assed two email a day sending freelance job no matter what the cost to you. I think at that point that tells you um, a lot about how much your husband values you. And frankly, like what kind of a father he would be if the two of you ever had kids together. And I think at that point, you would have sufficient information to say, I'm not in a marriage with a partner who supports me um, and is like doing his best. I'm in a marriage with a partner who sees me as a meal ticket who is like malfunctioning right now and needs to be like turned off and on again so that I can go back to providing him with the you know financial cushion he needs to do what he wants. Yeah, and I and I understand that the letter writer feels extra pressure because of um, you know the question of kids and the you know the drive to figure that out. I would encourage them to take it one step at a time. You know, like this is not at the moment the actual problem. The problem is, um, if anything, much bigger than that, which is that your partner is unsupportive of you and doesn't seem to put your happiness above your ability to, you know, furnish uh, him with a house while. Uh, you know, he does his thing, which apparently isn't making any money, although he thinks he should continue it. It's just, you know, this this is not a person who would be an optimal parent, the, the picture that you have painted of them. And so I think that, you know, handling this situation first will tell you a lot about what they will do in the future and what kind of parent they would be. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really think that removing the option of staying in your job just completely taking that off the table, like you said, uh, Danny, is a fantastic idea. It's just has to be something that is happening. Um, I think that once you establish that reality, it may go in a couple of different directions. You know, I, I want to believe for the letter writer that there is a future in which these two people are able to negotiate what they want. You know, obviously, one potential path is that this relationship will not end up working out because of this. Another potential path is that you figure out what is negotiable for each of you, you know, like, is there an option to take for each of you to take a part-time job that perhaps isn't the career of your dreams but allows you some more flexibility um, while, you know, allowing you to make the necessary payments? Like, is that a thing that you can work through together? You're Neither of you are going to have the absolutely perfect, you know, no strings attached, like can do whatever you want creatively freelance time, probably, right? You know, life is difficult. It doesn't work that way necessarily all the time or even most of the time. But I think that if you're able to have a really honest conversation about what things that you are able to tolerate in a working situation that pays the bills and what you're not, 
maybe that's something you can work through together. I, I want to believe that that's possible, but it's not looking great. Right. And again, I want to stress, I, I'm not suggesting that you walk in and quit your job tomorrow if you have no other way of making like ends meet or, or any other kind of medical insurance. But like setting a deadline for yourself, looking for other work now, even if it's not your dream job, even if it's just a better day job that doesn't make you hate your life, that would be such an improvement. Um, and, and those are things you can start at least taking steps towards making that happen. Um, and if your husband demonstrates any ability to turn around here and try to meet you halfway, um, you know, maybe it would be worth figuring out whether or not you two can can salvage this. But I'm just so he has had the last three years to either communicate to you, like, here's the progress I'm making on my freelance career. Here's my goals. Here's my fears. Here's what I'm hoping for. Here's a worst case scenario. Here's how close I think we might be to that three year mark. Um, it sounds like you did not get any of that information from him until basically the three years were up. And he was like, by the way, I don't want to do it. Um, and that to me suggests that he was pretty happy to like watch you go from numb to like frantic and was not feeling a particular sense of urgency about whether or not he was going to actually be able to keep like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not saying that any couple in a sort of similar looking situation is necessarily on the verge of collapse. I'm saying that, like, he did not spend the last couple of years saying, like, things aren't looking great, but I'm feeling anxious about the idea of getting a day job again. Can we talk about this? What are our options? How can we help each other? It was just like radio silence as long as he got to do what he wanted. And then when the time came to be there for her and the way that she was there for him, he was just like, you know, it really doesn't make financial sense for you to stop providing me with medical insurance. Like, And again, it sucks that they have to rely on work to get medical insurance. That's part of the problem is, um, is, is that we're dependent on employment to make sure that we're not like bankrupted if we get cancer. And that's uh, horrible. But um, I just I, I don't see anything here in this letter that suggests that this guy is going to be a good co-parent. I, I think this is the kind of guy who does a lot of like, oh, you just the kids just get you better. You know, you just you intuitively know how to do laundry. And uh, me, you know, I see a pile of clothes on the floor and I just temporarily leave my body and go to an astral plane. Um, and I hate him. <laughs> yeah. I hate him. Yeah, um, I'm really not OK with him. I would like to uh, launch him in the direction of the sun. Um, I, you know, I'm really you, you not You don't have great. to like join me in my overblown rhetoric, by the way, but thank you. I appreciate it. No, no, we're on, we're on a planetary, uh, sort of level here and uh -huh. I'm, I'm really appreciating that. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's really not okay. I really think that if this is something that ends up not going further, you will have dodged a bit of a bullet by not being a co-parent with this person. Yeah. This guy is a human shaped bullet. Three years, three years, and he couldn't accept either like it's just not happening or even tell you I don't think it's going to happen. That makes me so angry. That was such a long time. Um, I'm just so angry that he did that. Um, and I think it was really bad behavior on his part and it was sustained bad behavior. And that's what makes me feel like that is some insight into his character. Um, and um, I, I just think you would be so much better off without him. Um you know, you don't even do the usual, like, I love him, but, like, I think, I'm sure you do, but, um, you know, your love's got to show up in your actions, and it doesn't sound like his love has. <sighs> yeah. Dill I mean, would take never. Take that car that can vote, and yeah. Dill would never do this. Right. Honestly, like, you know, Dill is, Dil is extremely clear about what he brings to the family and uh, what he expects, <laughs> and... Again, it is chicken. It's always chicken. Yeah, but it's just a dill-sufficient amount of chicken. It's not 
everyone's chicken. It's not give me your chicken for the next three years and we'll see if I can find you a salmon filet in that meantime. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, no. And and in return, you know, he lets me know when there is a mouse in the apartment. It's happened exactly once, but that is his, it's what he brings. He's very honest about it and, you know, he's great at it. Corinne, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, please send me pictures of Dill at your earliest convenience because Dill sounds like the greatest <laughs> cat in the world. Well, thank you. Um, I know a lot of other cats that would take offense to that, but, you know, I am going to say it. I think he is. Thank you for having me, Danny, and for letting me talk about my cat this much. Of course. Thanks again. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate+. Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. Keep it short. 30 seconds a minute tops. And before I go, I want to give a special thanks to these Prudy fans who recently signed up for Slate Plus. Tony Wilson from Everett, Washington. Lindsay Johns from Oxford, Michigan. And Reva. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening.